Hello, this is James with The World's Last Night. Today I'm in Exodus chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdol and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zaphon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So it looks like God has a strategy, and his strategy is basically to have Israel feign stupidity and um, to look like they are ignorant of where they're going and incapable, which makes them look weak. But it's actually God setting up a trap. And this scripture tells us why he's setting up the trap. I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Effectively, this is going to answer that question that Pharaoh had uh, a long time ago when Moses first came, where he asked, who is the Lord? Well, you're about to find out. Okay, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about the people and said, What have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. So the chariots are very important because the chariot at this time in history is like having tanks. They are the... Um, the war machine of their age. So the Israelites leaving pretty much unarmed versus 600 Egyptian chariots, even though there's uh, 600,000 of these men of Israelites, their odds are really not in their favor for a battle. So, okay, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out triumphantly the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zaphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. Then the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. So... A couple things. One, this this space, we're about to see the crossing of the Red Sea. It literally, I think the literal translation is Reed Sea. We do not know where this crossing place is. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of really good guesses. Um, and so you can research those on your own. I mean, someone actually ran a computer model on a certain section of where this is suspected to be and they found out that if there is a moderate wind blowing for 10 hours that it will actually part the sea based on how the topography of this section uh, lays out so there's just been a lot of speculation as as far as where precisely this place is and so it's fun to think about but we don't really have any definitive answers and it doesn't really matter it's not not the point okay Let's see. Oh, and so what did the Israelites do? They cry out to God, which is, you know, what you should do when you're stuck in between a rock and a hard place and you've come to the end of your rope. God is the one who has to save you or you're dead. As Pharaoh approached, Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, 
Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, this isn't fair, and it's also stupid. These are people who have been wrapped up in their emotions. They're not actually thinking straight. They're completely forgetting the fact that God had caused all these plagues. And it's also, okay, guys, this is how you also know Scripture is, in my opinion, a reason that Scripture is divinely inspired, because the Israelites wrote this, right? Moses wrote this. And they would have made themselves look a lot better. And in fact, the entire Bible, um, if it was just merely written by humans, would make themselves look a lot better. But everyone is flawed from, you know, end to end except Jesus Christ in this entire book. So these people, they look really bad right now. They're being unfair to Moses. And they did make kind of a joke, which you'd have to catch, where they basically say, aren't there enough graves in Egypt for you to drag us out here to die in the wilderness? The joke is basically that we know from archaeology, Egypt, about three-fourths of their entire land was used for graves. And in fact, that's what the pyramids were, were. They were basically graves, tombs. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation he will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. So at this point, you're if you're in this camp, you're thinking a few things. One might be, okay, I'm going to fight these Egyptians and I'm a tough guy. Two, I'm going to run. I'm going to try to uh, swim across the sea right now and get out of here. Three, you have your complain, your complainers and critics who are just lobbing and hurling insults at Moses. Those are my my least favorite. Um, But then you have this sort of fourth stance that Moses takes, which is, uh, hey, shut up and wait on God. I don't think Moses exactly knows what God's going to do, but he is a prophet and he he does believe God's going to come through and that they're not going to have to deal with the Egyptians anymore. So he sees this for what it really is, which is God setting up a trap. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Commentators, I think Spurgeon specifically, talks about this passage in terms of prayer, and I really like it. It is something that, I have a good friend, um, he and I debate about this one topic frequently, but it's something that I agree with. And that is, there's a time for prayer and there's a time for action. And frequently, you can you you can do the action and you can pray along the way. Um, this is a time God is saying, why are you crying out to me? And then he basically says, you need to be doing these things. <laughs> Break camp, uh, lift your staff up, let's part this sea, like, let's get going. Um, when God's already given you direction, a lot of times it's just scriptural. It's like, uh, you need to behave this way in your life. You don't need to necessarily just uh, be stuck there and and pray pray about it and not have any any action. It is my opinion, and people will disagree with me. It is my opinion that there are several things and choices that you make on Earth that God has given you a rational brain and Scripture to figure out, 
and you don't have to necessarily have a divine interaction with God to get direction on it. And this was proven to me actually when I went through a breakup and uh, I was in a, a car, I rented a cottage just because I was still like, I don't know what I'm doing, God. I need, I wanted to meditate basically and be alone. <laughs> so I did that and like I prayed for a couple days to God asking him, what should I do in this circumstance? And literally the thing that he told me was do whatever is true and good and pure. It's like straight, it's scripture. He was quoting a verse to me. And it wasn't like a, a specific like, oh, you need to do this. Um, you need to forget about her or you need to pursue her or whatever. No, nothing specific. But it was uh, basically saying that you need to do what I've already told you to do. <laughs> You've read scripture. Live your life. And uh, another time, I remember he literally told me, he's like, I've given you all the, I asked him a question about how, what to do. And he said, I've given you all the faculties you need to figure this out. So all that to say, pray, ask God for direction. But there are some things in your life that God's already given you direction on and you sitting there and praying and asking God for specifics about things that are inconsequential in the grand scheme of things is just wasting time. That's my opinion. That's also, it's an opinion I've built up out of experience. So here we go. Get, get to work, Moses. I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by the means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who is going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptians and Israelite forces. The cloud was there in the darkness, yet it lit up the night. So neither group came near the other all night long. So what is used as Israel's salvation, this cloud in the darkness that's lighting up the night, for one people, the Israelites, is used for judgment against another nation, the Egyptians. And frequently, that is the reaction that various people have towards God. Pretend tomorrow Jesus comes back, the sky cracks open, the world begins to melt away. That moment is either going to be the most terrifying, horrific, nightmarish moment you could possibly imagine... Or it's going to be the most glorious, wonderful, beautiful moment you could possibly imagine. And the difference between those two thoughts on that event depends on whether you are reconciled to Jesus already or not. And if you're not, he's your divine enemy. He loves you and wants you to be saved. But at that moment, judgment is coming. But if you are reconciled, he is your salvation not your ju not your judgment. So the same thing, this pillar can be one person's salvation and another person's judgment. It can be beautiful or it can be horrifying and it all depends on what how our hearts are attuned to God. So then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea 
The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So that's basically, you can look up this computer model thing, like just Google it. Um, it does make sense. It, I mean, it literally says a wind did this. And the model, it said that it, took, it would take 10 hours of this wind blowing to be able to carve a dry portion of this sea out that it talks about. But okay, off topic. Well, not really off topic, but unimportant. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. Some Moana cool stuff going on there. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. Then during the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw them into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, said the Egyptians, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. So God is throwing them in disarray. And uh, if you read in Psalms, there's a recalling of this event. It's even like more dramatic. There's raining and thunder and lightning. It's nuts. Terrifying. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord overthrew them in the sea. The waters came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. None of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't last long. As you'll find out, eventually Israel turns against the Lord, forgets the Lord, and also disrespects Moses. It's all bad. But for now, you know, they, they believe and they have faith, which is good. So this little part, they see the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So these dead bodies are washing up on the seashore. Later on, the Egyptians are going to have to fight many, many battles. And this could be where they got their armaments. They could have plundered the Egyptians that washed up on the seashore. Doesn't say. Speculation. It's all good. So there's the end of chapter 14. And it's also the end of, really, Egypt for a while. Egypt does come back in the scripture. We read about it down the line. But for now, we're going to focus on Israel in the wilderness, and the law is going to be introduced. We get the Ten Commandments. And like I said previously, I'm actually going to skip around probably a lot throughout Exodus and Leviticus until we get to... The writings in the Bible. Numbers has some good stuff. Let's see. Deuteronomy has the law. In fact, Deuteronomy after Numbers. Deuteronomy is the most frequently cited Old Testament book by Jesus in the New Testament, which is cool. So when we, when we come back, we will be in chapter 15. Until then, this is James from The World's Last Night.